Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bound. William Shakespeare, that little-known English playwright, has had his catalogue of work performed over and over since the Bard first churned out what have since become the stalwarts of the English theatrical canon. Unsurprisingly, some plays are more popular than others and it's a challenge to any theatre company to attempt to put a new spin on Shakespearean performances. But the Royal Shakespeare Company is taking on both of these challenges this spring by staging one of a sequence of rarely performed plays and creating a spectacle of heroic proportions. Henry VI, part two, renamed by the RSC as Henry VI Rebellion, recounts the fighting that has beset the king's court and the country in the mid-15th century. Ordinary men and women begin to speak out and band together to rise up in protest against their ruler. At the heart of the play lies the question, can the people ever really decide their own future? Well... The play has the longest dramatis personae of any Shakespearean drama, with 85 listed in the cast, which is one of the reasons why it's often avoided. Just as Shakespeare's story concerns the people of England in the broadest sense, this version has enlisted professional actors, young performers and other members of the Royal Shakespeare community from up and down the country, 120 of them in total. At times, there'll be 50 people treading the hopefully reinforced boards of the RSC's stage. We went along to the rehearsals of this gargantuan undertaking, albeit before the masses rehearsing elsewhere in the country arrived, and met some of those making the production happen. First up, the director of Henry VI Rebellion and War of the Roses, the RSC's other forthcoming production, Owen Horsley. Our enemies shall fall before us, inspired with the spirit of putting down kings and princes. There shall be in England seven half penny loaves sold for a penny. Well, we've just heard a bit of the sound of rehearsals here in Clapham. It's exciting stuff. Whether you know the play or not, anyone turning up to watch this will find familiar themes. It's very much a sort of state of the nation piece, but doubly so, it seems, for, for this production, because there's all sorts of different parts of the country and sorts of people joining the, the fray in both senses of the word, I suppose. Can you tell us about, about the idea behind that? So in Rebellion, which is uh, Henry VI Part Two, there's a theme running through it of the people of England. There's lots of scenes where the king encounters um, members of the public and there's this growing kind of resistance and rebellion and it explodes basically at the end of this play, which you would have heard with Cade's rebellion that starts in Kent then comes to London. So we thought it would be really interesting to have lots of people from different parts of the country to play those parts. Uh, there's a particular stage direction in the play where Cade, it says that Cade enters with infinite numbers. And it was quite interesting kind of going, OK, let's try and see if we can do that stage direction the best we can. So I think at one point, at the end of the play, we'll have over 50 people on stage for a rebellion, which is going to be 
it's going to be really fun. <laughs> we can hear that in the audio from the rehearsals here, Owen. But there's such a kind of manic energy to Cade and to his followers. It's kind of a very, it's very loud. Yeah. It's very intense. How do you control that and kind of keep a lid on it, allow people to be able to hear what's being said? Because it's to say, yeah, there's a manic energy to a lot of the action in the play. Yeah, because it is essentially it's about how do you whip up hysteria amongst the public? And that's something that we we encounter a a lot at the moment in the world that we live in. Uh, You look at the kind of storming of the Capitol last year, for example that how do you get people to that level of like hysteria and violence and it is done always with Shakespeare through language so it's about the points and the argument that they hear that then in that trigger that moment of action so that's really what we need to be kind of working on as we're going through it is what is it that he says that then triggers that as you say that volume and that sound there's a kind of glamour to Cade I mean there's a sort of populist as you say, he's sort of exciting popular ferment, I suppose. Um, the king seems very quiet and sad and alone, I suppose, a lot of the time, just in the bits that we've, we've heard today. Is that something you want to draw out, the sort of difference between those two men and the sort of the, the crazy volume and then the sort of silence of the king and the sadness and sort of, uh, sort of desolate nature of his situation. Yeah and that's exactly what it there's so much in this play which I find really interesting to do with the expectation of masculinity and the expectation of what it is to be a man. We remove the word weak from the rehearsal room so like often in when we're looking at this play Henry will be described as a weak king and I've gone no it's not as simple as that he is a particular type of man who believes in diplomacy and believes in words over action but unfortunately the world that he lives in is much more leaning towards this idea of, of volume the idea of men being people that lead us into battles and creates hysteria so that kind of thing so He's isolated from the world that he inhabits a lot of the time. Is that in the text, that those subtleties, no more subtle <laughs> a playwright than Shakespeare, I suppose, but are, those, are you drawing out 21st century mores or are, is, are those things in the, in the text, in the speeches of the king? I think they are in the, in the speeches of the king. He talks almost a completely different language to the other people in the play. The people in the play speak much more politically. They have suggestive language. They use language in a way to really get what they want in a, in a way that we can recognise now as, as what we would call political language. And Henry just doesn't seem to have that ability. He's so open and honest. But that's the way that Shakespeare writes, the difference between how people speak. But obviously, you know, we're all looking at Shakespeare post-Freud. I mean, we're all interpreting into what we now think about, you know, the ideas of masculinity, what it is to be a leader. So, of course, everything in the room becomes interpretive from our own individual point of view. From what I've seen this morning, there's a sort of ambivalent to the sort of exercise of power, the glamour of populism, the kind of tribulations of being a king and having to be in charge. As he says, I was born, you know, born into being a king and I, wish, I only wish I was a subject. Yeah. I suppose it's heavy as the head that wears the crown. It's a theme throughout Shakespeare. Is it one of the central themes of, of this one? It is. I mean, it is part of the history cycle and you'll always meet that point of empathy that Shakespeare comes at a point of leadership, which is the kind of wish or long for something other than what they do. But I think the word that you use there, which I think is the most important, is it being ambivalent. I think that one for me as a director, the, the most joy I get from doing Shakespeare is that it is all ambivalent. That the, you cannot, it's neither good or bad or at any point. And he's always interested in seeing it from both sides. 
And that, to me, I think in this world, I think it's quite useful to, to present work that actually offers that ambivalence so that the audience are left to make their own decision and maybe to be left in a more uncomfortable position where they're not given an answer or they're not given the way to follow, that they have to somehow make that choice themselves. And to go back to my original question, the sort of mass of bodies on the stage, you said that at some points there are going to be 50 people on the stage when this rebellion kind of takes light. And I know you've got you know, professional and non-professional actors at certain points. How do you mix that? How have you found reaching out to sort of non-traditional Shakespeare kind of communities? I, I know what I mean by that. I've yeah. expressed that very poorly. <laughs> communities that wouldn't, that, that, that for whom Shakespeare is not kind of on the tips of their tongues and incorporating those non-professional actors into the throng. How's that worked out? Well, I mean, it's not something that's new to the RSC. The RSC do this a lot. So Shakespeare Nation is a well-established kind of branch of the RSC, as is Next Generation. So they do a lot. And I think the ethos behind it is, of course, we want people to to access Shakespeare in a way that is it affects their actual kind of everyday life. It's not an academic exercise. So, you know, there's one thing, the best way to look at Shakespeare is to see it, to get it. That's the best way to understand it. Even better than that is to take part in it. So we've kind of gone, let's get as many people to take part in this. So actually by doing that, they can go back to their parts of the country. Maybe they might from this experience start a Shakespeare group and continue a Shakespeare group that they're already doing with a completely different experience of actually being part of something of this scale. And, and it's such a kind of, such a fraternity, isn't it? It's such a lovely thing to be together. Just seeing the energy in the rehearsal room, it's so lovely to, I mean, obviously also to be all together in a room yeah. is nice, and your audience will love that as well. But, uh, you know, that kind of brotherhood and sisterhood of, of being together is such a lovely thing. Is that sort of... Obviously, they're done in different ways in different plays, but that must be something kind of lovely to sort of, you know, knit those things together. Yeah, it's kind of the reason why I do theatre, because of that energy in the rehearsal room. And we've, we haven't had that for about two years, and it's, it's kind of, it does have a different worth and feeling to it now that we can go back into that room. Every play is different, but these plays in particular, there's two of them, it's very ensemble-led. Like you, you have to be a very strong ensemble to get us through this, essentially what is five hours of theatre. Like it takes us to extremely, as you say, low, but also incredibly violent places in the second play. So it's a really great, strong company, and it, it's nice to feel that support in the room. And you kind of need that, really, when you're doing plays of this size. Just finally, you mentioned that Part of the joy of directing Shakespeare and interpreting it is the ambivalence, is the audience being able to go home with their own, making their own judgment on history, on the story. Having said that, there are, this is a a play that deals with kind of a metropolitan elite being out of touch and Kentish rebellion and things that are obviously very close to home. It will scald perhaps some members of the of the audience. I mean, how interested are you to see the reaction looking on the first night, the first week of runs, looking out into the audience and seeing people sort of tutting at some of the action as much as enjoying it? Because it's very didactic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's always nice to have that varied response in the audience because it does keep, especially for the actors, it keeps them alive. You know, the great thing about theatre is that, the, and especially doing Shakespeare, is that the audience are always there. There's never a scene where we don't, we pretend that the audience are present with us. And if we can create a, a kind of active audience who feel implicated into the action, then we're doing our job properly. If they feel like they can just sit back and go, well, I'm just coming here to watch it, then of course 
that's not really what we want to achieve. I mean, there's such beautiful language in it, but it is, it's all about the action, I suppose, right? These plays are. It's Shakespeare, he's 27. It's his, like, angry young man phase. I mean, they are action, action, action all the way. And the language is good, don't get me wrong, the language is fantastic, but it's not, we're not looking at him later in life who is really mastering this use of poetry. This is all about violence, action. <laughs> and at the centre of it is this very sensitive young man trying to contend with it all. Sensitive young man, not a weak king. I shall cross that out of my notebook. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I also spoke with three of the professional cast members, Minnie Gale, who plays Margaret, Henry's wife, Emma Tracy, who plays Spirit, and Mark Courtley, who plays Henry VI. And before the drama even gets to the fate of the king, there are some other fresh deeds exacted upon the cast. There are a few severed heads drifting about on stage, one of which, belonging to Suffolk, offers Margaret, Minnie Gale, a very fresh, alas, poor Yorick-style moment. Thank you all for your time. I'm spoiling your lunch hour. Thank you very much for, for kind of leaving the manic energy, at least in some part of the rehearsal room, um, to speak with us uh, today. And I was speaking to, to Minnie before, before you guys turned up about how you kind of play your own track because there's kind of wild energy in the, in the production and then there's sort of moments of great sadness and sort of solitude and, you know, looking in the mirror... Minnie, maybe I'll start with you. How do you how do you kind of keep the occasionally sad energy of Margaret intact when you're having to kind of play counterpoint to Cade's manic energy? Yeah, that's interesting because actually prior to the point where you walked in, Margaret's energy is very different. She's sort of like so many different flavours. And what I'm finding is that there's no two characters that kind of have the same energy or even similar and they all have a fierce argument to make and they're all wildly different. So I'm finding you have to bring on something really boldly different and it's almost like you have to kind of like wrestle the play around (laughs) and kind of say, oh no, it's this play. And yeah, it's very, very challenging because you everybody's so so different within it yeah it's tough and and emma your character you're kind of in the thick of the action how do you sort of g yourself up to get into that thing i mean you've got a kind of an inspiring mad general in cade i suppose how do you kind of get into it well i guess aaron who plays cade is amazing and he sorts of gets us there anyway through um just him but we all (laughs) we do like a sort of running on the spot type thing before we come on stage to sort of get us all in the mood but we just have found this amazing energy amongst ourselves on stage which we just bounce off of each other so if one person reacts to something you can turn to somebody else on another side of the stage and just get their reaction and let that build your own reaction and that's just going to grow when Shakespeare Nation and Next Gen come in and there's going to be thousands of people on that stage (laughs) it's just going to be mad. Speaking to Owen it sounds like that will be an interesting tussle for cast and director and everyone alike, I suppose. It's, it's a bit of herding cats, herding Shakespeare's cats about it, right? 
And are you looking forward to that moment? Because suddenly that kind of, there's the audience, I mean, who obviously you will address and you're not necessarily locking eyes with, but are obviously very present in all Shakespeare's productions and written for them. What about suddenly having 50 further people on stage? You're going to get caught up in more action. Yeah, I think we are all mega looking forward to it and also very nervous about it, but mainly looking forward to it because it's all been done so well in that um, pockets of us look after pockets of people, so we know exactly where everybody's going, so it's not like they're just going to be aimlessly wandering around the stage. We know exactly where everybody's going, and um, they're going to bring an energy to it because they've never, they've not been there before, and they've not done the play before when they step on that stage. I mean, I know myself, it's just an incredible moment just to be there and be with these people who you're suddenly acting with for a couple of days and it's just they will have the adrenaline that we need and we will steal it from them and it will be great and it will be yeah just community it will be really good yeah and I guess riffing off riffing off that sort of you know different sort of energy to being a professional actor and all the rest of it and having something you have to deal with that I suppose there's quite quite a lot of reaction involved yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. But like I said, the good thing is you can kind of look at someone and go, oh, that's what we're doing, okay. <laughs> um, but I, Aaron, is he? his points as Cade are so well split up that we know exactly when we're cheering and we know exactly when we're looking for blood and it's it's just been so well choreographed that, yeah, it's we know, we know what we're doing on that. Strength in numbers, she says. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> And Mark, talking with Owen, uh, he was interesting on the king. I mean, we're presented with two different types of leadership, a kind of manic populist, and then the king's character, who's a sensitive young ruler. It's a tough one. How do you, again, sort of speaking to Minnie's point about not getting caught up in the action and having these moments of reflection that we saw, at least in the rehearsal room today, how do you kind of keep the lid on that and kind of there's a sort of quiet strength and a consideration about the king's character. What, what do you look for? How do you draw that out? Yeah. Well, I'm very glad to use the word strength there because I think Henry's been given a rough ride both in production history but also actual history in terms of being viewed as this weak-willed, feeble king. We actually know now that he suffered a sort of, well, I guess maybe our best our best idea is that it might have been about a severe depression. He, he had a, went through a catatonic state um, where he was kind of totally irresponsive, unresponsive. And um, yes, <laughs> how to sort of portray a man who is very sensitive in a world that is seductively violent and... Yeah. and seductively violent is an excellent way of putting it. Yeah, well, we are seduced, aren't we, by seeing these characters like, well, you're yet to meet Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who becomes Richard III. But he's exactly that. He's a man who revels in moments of gore. And spoiler alert, but we have a number of uh, severed heads on stage in the second play. Oh, well, we have one, of course, yeah, at the end of this play. Just the one. (laughs) Just the one, that's nothing. But yes, I feel a, a duty, both to Henry as a real person and the Henry of Shakespeare's plays, to show that uh, there is strength in quiet leadership as well. Yeah. And it's impossible to avoid what's going on in the world at the moment and seeing the devastations of war and thinking that there has to be a route for diplomacy amidst bloodlust. How much do you... You've obviously read up on the real Henry and close reading of the, of the text for the production. How much do you want to interpret 
make up your own Henry and how much do you want to interpret the, the real one or the historical one, I wonder. And also, I'd add to that, how much do you steal from the other amazing actors that have played this part on... The- I, was, I didn't want to ask that. <laughs> because the ghosts loom large when you do a play with yes. the RSC. But... It's a really good question. I've had far too long to think about it because we were meant to be doing these productions over two years ago. So I have done uh, quite a lot of research during lockdowns about the real Henry. I think it's one of those beautiful things you get to do with these Shakespeare roles where you can interpret the way, you know, the, the language can support lots of different interpretations. And I'm not there yet. We're only, <laughs> we're moving up to Stratford in a week's time, just over a week's time. So I'm still finding things and trying new things. But yes, there is, there's definite, where it's useful in history, crib away. Where it's not useful, try and forget about it. And, uh, and as always, I think you go back to Shakespeare's language and what's that telling you? And yes, what clues might that give you as to his character? Even the kind of accusation of the media, you know, the printing press and, you know, the kind of idea of nouns and verbs and language being people being hostage to words themselves, which is a wonderfully kind of reflectional look at Shakespeare's use of language and stuff like that. It's, 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 there's, there's such amazing stuff for you guys to get your, your kind of teeth into and, and, and the transformations that you guys go through. Minnie, I wanted to ask you, we mentioned that heavy is the head that wears the crown when I was talking to Owen, obviously... How heavy is the head that you're, <laughs> that you're mourning that we just saw in rehearsals this morning? Yes, I mean, I think... Just an average wax head that you're carrying around. It's not as heavy as, as a real head would be, which thanks for that, because uh, noted. <laughs> I'm going to incorporate that when I next do that, see? Uh, that's a very good point, thanks. Um, yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's it. Is, uh, Owen is fantastic and he constantly reminds us you know not to normalize anything because I think once it's on a page we somehow have a habit of doing that and you know the fact that there's a severed head in the room is not normal and should never be normal so it's sort of like the reality the realities are extreme it's a funny one. I mean, I wanted to also talk you as a couple, stage couple, you and Mark, you and the King. There's a bond there. I mean, you're, you're holding a head and you're kind of, and then your husband is sort of saying, come with me, come away with me. There's some very intimate and strange and sort of striking theatrical moments there. The woman with the severed head, something very Samson and Delilah about this as well. How do you guys prepare for your sort of on-stage roles together does it help to be together and work closely or is it nice to just sort of turn up and play it and see what happens between the two of you I feel I could only speak for myself and I think that every actor is completely different in their process and I feel like the best way of working is to respect other people's process and to and to embrace your own and that that's okay yeah we're in a very very trusting room and in my experience the rooms where people connect and and trust each other and work in benevolent and friendly ways they're always my favorite and I always feel creatively the most free in that environment and luckily we we are in that room and it it feels incredibly trusting it feels like post-pandemic as well people have come back just I just feel so lucky to be in that room and so lucky that we're still doing this, that we're still making 
theatre and that we're still telling stories like this. And I didn't realise until the pandemic, I've never felt like such an actor since that time when we couldn't do it. I suddenly realised, well, yeah, we, it isn't brain surgery, but it is part of a healthy society. That's how we breathe. <laughs> you know, this is how we reflect. <laughs> and this is a sign of, of the health of a society. We can all drink to that, can't we, I think? Absolutely, yeah. And how about you, Mark? How do you, with your sort of on-stage relationship, how do you prepare for that? Is it nice to turn up, or does it need a lot of close kind of work? Because well, it's a very quiet dynamic that you have. It's a fascinating relationship, and I don't think, again, we haven't solidified any decisions. Minnie and I had the privilege of working on part one of this play last summer, so we have been talking about it for some time, which is useful. We like to surprise each other, I'd say, in, in rehearsals as well and throw a, a curveball here and there. <laughs> and that can be really useful. It's lovely to be surprised by another actor. But there does have to be trust there and, and a shared understanding, I suppose. I mean, Minnie had COVID a couple of weeks ago and I foolishly told her over Zoom that I decided it was all Margaret's fault, which I think is still potentially legitimate. But um, <laughs> It's a curse from down the centuries. It's fine. <laughs> But no, look, these are just amazing roles and their relationship is complex. And I think maybe if I can take the liberty of speaking for us, I would say that we think that it is a difficult relationship. It's not as simple as they love each other unconditionally or they hate each other's guts. There are moments of both. And that, of course, is what makes it so extraordinary in living now over 400 years after his death. And to Minnie's point about... As punters, as the audience, we've missed this so much. Even being in your rehearsal room, thanks for having me. I mean, it's such lovely energy in there and a crazy energy at times. And that's lovely. What about as a community yourselves? I mean, as Minnie says, that must be something that you're doing it for real now, whereas you were... It's probably nice to get some radio work, but <laughs> this is the real deal. You know? Yeah, and actually a lot of us have been lucky enough to do screen work in the past couple of years. But the collaboration involved in theatrical productions and particularly something of such a massive scale I mean it's completely bonkers that we're having 121 people in our company it's a crazy idea I don't know who came up with that idea after the two years we've had it's like feast and famine famine and feast right it's like right we're going to go absolutely hell for leather it's going to be joyous it's amazing having that, that buzz of all those people in, in the rooms and I'm glad you felt a manic energy today I mean just wait for the second play because things go properly haywire then but yes it is also justified in the play I mean it's the the largest cast list, if you like, of any Shakespeare play, Henry VI Part Two. So, um, yeah, bring it on. I can't wait to have them all in the building and an audience in front of us. It's going to be quite a special thing. Your crown is quite a demure affair. How comfortable is it? And you can answer that metaphorically or physically. Because <laughs> well, you, you have to take it off from time to time. It's a rehearsal crown. I think the real... Rehearsal crown, isn't it? <laughs> That's just a rehearsal crown. <laughs> And I think there are two options for where we're going on the crown. It's either going to be decked with, as Henry says, diamonds and Indian stones, or quite plain. This is a king, he says the line, was never subject longed to be a king, as I do long and wish to be a subject. So we know this is a man who hates the weight of kingship. And I like the idea that, comfortable though it may be to wear, that he feels trapped by this vice-like golden thing on his head. It feels like it needs some cushioning inside it. It feels a bit raw against his 
frail skull, right? Yes, I mean, that, that's great. And as we were saying, you know, his mental anguish can be reflected in that physical pain, I suppose. But yes, I think, I think he'd be a lot happier without the trappings of wealth, that's for sure. I feel honoured to have a line delivered to me. I might get you all to do it. What's the line that sums up your character? My actual character is in the, before you came in, in this fantastic scene where Eleanor, Duchess of Gloucester, conjures up spirits. Oh, good question. Sorry to ask you that one. No, it's okay. Um, okay, she says, uh, The Duke yet lives that Henry shall depose, but him outlive and die a violent death. She's good, isn't she? <laughs> isn't she good? Yeah. yeah. And Minnie, as Margaret, as you said, you kind of run the gamut from being slightly conniving to being grief-stricken, slightly <laughs> conniving. <laughs> That's the, in layman's terms. What's the line that you love to deliver? Well, I think, well, there's lots, but I think one of my favourite lines is, it's in War of the Roses, where she says, so part we sadly in this troublous world to meet with joy in sweet Jerusalem. And there are a million ways of playing Margaret, because she is infinite variety and such an amazing legacy of actresses, I can't even begin. Some of whom I've seen and admire greatly. But for me, that line just epitomises her, that she is like one of those dolls that if you push them down, they rock back up again. And that's what I've fallen in love with her for, is her, her endless optimism and her endless ability to, to rise back up. And, you know, she loves Henry and constantly is trying to help him up. And that line, yeah, that even, I'm not going to give a spoiler, but even when looking into the abyss of the great hereafter, she can say, oh, it doesn't matter, because I'm, I'm going to this brilliant place. <laughs> so she can defeat, she's indefeatable. And what a woman. There's a lot of Jerusalem, new and otherwise, I suppose, about this. There's a lot of promise, and there's a lot of promise of false promise and Christian promise and all sorts of things in this play. You're all so brilliant. Thank you very much, Minnie, Emma and Mark, for your time. Thank you. And bonne chance. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Owen Horsley, Mark Courtley, Minnie Gale and Emma Tracy. The Royal Shakespeare Company's Henry VI Rebellion is now on in Stratford-upon-Avon. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much for tuning in.